Good afternoon. If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9. And we'll be looking at verses 19 through 31 this afternoon. Acts 9, 19 through 31. If you're visiting with us, welcome. If you haven't been here in a while, welcome back. Um, and if you haven't been here for this series, we're in the midst of a series through the book of Acts, learning uh, much about the, the early church. And here in Acts 9, last week we considered um, Saul, who will later be known as the Apostle Paul, uh, his conversion, the, the voice and the vision of Jesus that blinded him on the road to Damascus, uh, the faithful witness of Ananias who came and helped lead him to faith. And today we're going to consider the events of the days and the years that followed Saul's conversion, as Luke records them here in the book of Acts. Uh, in her novel, Pride and Prejudice, which I've actually read, Jane Austen uh, writes about the many and various circumstances that eventually led to, spoiler alert, Elizabeth Bennet becoming the wife of Mr. Darcy. Uh, it's a good story because these two people, they come from completely different classes in society, and they are initially completely despise each other. Uh, but uh, as is often the case, of spirit, uh, as is often the case, appearances can be deceiving, and the novel ends with this unlikely couple now married and ready to live happily ever after. But because of where the novel ends, we find nothing out about their first year of marriage, let alone what happened in the years that follow it. That, that's because the, the point of the novel is to get the couple together, right? And once that story is told, uh, we just need to trust that everything's going to be okay from there on out. Uh, that's the story for many books, not to mention romantic comedies. That's where the story ends, right? Get the couple together and that's, that's it. The story is about how people fall in love, not the subsequent life that they live. But we know that life shows us that the, the story of meeting and falling in love, while it's wonderful and while it's a beautiful part of any love story, it's really only the beginning, right? My grandparents recently celebrated 70 years of marriage. And our family loves the story that they tell about how they met on a street in Canton, Ohio. But at the same time, it's the life that they built from that point that contains all the different beautiful shades of love that only a 70-year marriage could possibly uh, reflect. In a similar way, if we were to focus simply on the fact that Saul, a former persecutor of Christians, became a follower of Jesus through this blinding light and through the voice of the risen Jesus, then we would miss all that Saul grew to be as a disciple of Jesus and as the apostle to the Gentiles. If we stopped at his conversion and just thought, well, that's the end of it, we would miss so much about what God wants to teach us through Saul. His, his conversion surely shaped his entire life. It was a, an amazing turning point in Saul's life. But in many ways, it was also just the beginning of everything that God was doing in Saul's life. I think there's a danger in our own Christian lives and in the church as well to focus so much on someone becoming a true disciple of Jesus that we neglect to help people see how they can grow as followers of Jesus in their life. That we can explain the way to become a Christian, but we often neglect 
knowing how to give a new believer the tools that they need to walk the rest of their lives in the ways of Jesus. And in, to be honest, sometimes we become, we've become a Christian and we really don't know how to walk in the ways of Jesus. We've been baptized, but we fail to understand how to listen to everything that Jesus commanded, which is what we're supposed to do. And so here we find some details on the, the days and the years that followed Saul's miraculous conversion. They're, they're details that help us get a picture of Saul's life, but they also are instructive for how we all are to grow as Christians and how we also can help other people grow, how we can be discipled and also how we can be discipling other people and helping them to grow. These verses in Acts 9, 19-30 teach us this, and here's our big idea for this afternoon. They teach us that growing as a follower of Jesus will take time, trials, and the genuine love of God's people. I almost got three T's in there for you, but I didn't want to stretch it. So, anyways. Uh, Growing as a follower of Jesus is going to take three things. It's going to take time, it will take trials, and it will take the genuine love of God's people. Now, I wouldn't say that time, trials, and the genuine love of God's people, that those are all of the elements of discipleship, that that's the only things that you need to grow in the ways of Jesus, but I think that they are foundational. They're like the, the key ingredients in chicken noodle soup. Kids, if you were going to make chicken noodle soup, what do you think are the key ingredients? What would you need first if you're going to make chicken noodle soup? Someone say it. Chicken. What else would you need? Noodles. And what else would you need? Well, carrots, those are the base. You're right. Thank you. That'd be good soup. Chicken, noodles, soup. (laughs) That's not an ingredient. You need some water or some broth or something. Those are the three. You know, once you have that, if you have chicken, noodles, and broth, you've got chicken noodle soup. You can add carrots and many other things. But those are the core things. And so I think that as I mentioned those things, I just want you to see that if we want to grow personally and if we want to help other people grow and, and we want to think beyond just the conversion to Christianity, then we need to think about some of these key components. And I think that time, trials, and the genuine love of God's people, those are things that are going to help us to grow as followers of Christ. If we want to grow, we can't just think about conversion to Christianity, no matter how dramatic it might be. That, that's not where our walk with Jesus ends, is it? It's the beginning, and we need to grow. And we learn from this passage that growing as a follower of Jesus is going to take time, trials, and the genuine love of God's people. So with that in mind, let me read Acts 9, beginning in the middle of verse 19, and I'll read through verse 30. It says, For some days he, speaking of Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. 
And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Growing as a follower of Jesus will take time, trials, and the genuine love of God's people. Let's think first about this element of time. And as we do, I want us to consider the timeline of Paul's early days as a Christian. Because one of the questions that surrounds this passage is, when did all of this happen? And part of the reason that's a question to consider is because some of the additional details that are found in Galatians make it difficult to understand exactly how all the pieces of Paul's early life fit together. And how many years are actually summarized within these verses. I don't think these timeline details are massively important. I don't think they call into question the truth of what's written here. But I do think that when we think about Saul's journey and we think about the timeline of his life in these early days, we remember that he's a real person that lived in this physical world that we did as well. And I think it also helps us to apply these events from Saul's journey to our own journeys. And so uh, think with me about this for a little bit. If you want to track Saul's movements here in Acts 9, we see him in Damascus from uh, when he's on the road and he finally ends up in Damascus, but then all the way through verse 25, he's in Damascus, which is when he is snuck out of the city being lowered down in a basket. From there, verse 26 says, says that he ends up back in Jerusalem, which is an interesting thing to think about, that he eventually retraced his steps from Damascus back down to Jerusalem. He'd made the trip from Jerusalem to Damascus to persecute Christians. And now he makes the trip from Damascus to Jerusalem as a Christian. I just wonder if he took a moment to pause, maybe, knowing the place where Jesus had appeared to him and spoke to him, and just paused in a moment to give thanks to God for saving him. Eventually, Saul arrives in Jerusalem, but he's not there very long. He ends up fleeing from there, just as he had fled from Damascus because of another threat on his life. And from Jerusalem, he goes to Caesarea for a brief time, and then he goes to his hometown of Tarsus, which would have been, uh, if I get my directions right, it would have been northwest up in modern-day Turkey is where Tarsus was. So that's where Saul was. As far as when it all happened and how long it all took, the only time indicators we get here are, you see in verse 19, it says, for some days, which is vague. And then in verse 23, we see when many days had passed, which is just as vague. So we don't really know exactly when all this happened, but we get some details in Galatians 1 and 2. So Paul gives a a brief testimony about his conversion from these early days. And then he says this in Galatians 1, 16 to 18, that after his conversion, he says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. So we've got two times there, three three years and 15 days. So it would seem that Saul was in Damascus, but he was also in an area called Arabia, 
in those days following his conversion. And that that period in being in Damascus and then Arabia and then back in Damascus lasted about three years. Then he ends up in Jerusalem. He's there for 15 days. He meets Peter. What an interesting conversation to be a part of. Conversation between Saul and Peter. And so we find that the events of Acts 9, 19 through 25 happen over the course of three years. And that Saul wasn't just in Damascus, but was also in Arabia. And then he visits Jerusalem. And that visit only lasts 15 days before he's off to Tarsus because of a death threat. He would get back to Jerusalem um, Galatians 2 1 tells us, but it would actually be 14 years after his conversion. So he's going to spend about a decade away from Jerusalem before he eventually comes back. Sometimes when we read these things, we think that just because the chapters are next to each other, that it all happened very quickly. But this is a long period of time. And it's only after all that time that he and Barnabas leave on their first missionary journey in Acts 13. So, got all those times and places in your mind? Why are we talking about this? I think it's interesting to think about this lengthy time period between Acts 9 and, and 13. And, and thinking about that, that Paul was discipled. Saul, Paul, he was discipled in the ways of Jesus for 14 years, learning who Jesus was and learning how to minister to others. And this all happens before he is sent out from the church at Antioch. And he was a powerful witness of the gospel in those times, but he was also a learner in the school of Jesus. I think we can assume when we think about Saul that from a ministry standpoint, things took off for him immediately. And surely his, his testimony in the early church would have been powerful and brought many people to faith. Uh, Acts 9.20 tells us that Saul immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues as the Son of God. And it says that everyone who heard him was amazed. They all knew why he had come to Damascus. They had all heard about his zeal against the church, and then they saw his zeal for the church and for Jesus. And however unpolished his teaching and his preaching may have been in those days, his testimony caused many people surely to come to faith. And a group began to build up around him such that after those three years, verse 25 says that, that Saul had disciples, people that were following him. But Saul also had a lot to learn as he read the scriptures through this new lens of Jesus being the Messiah. And many think that actually the years of, of, of training in this the school of Jesus, we might call it, that they took place in those three years after his conversion, before uh, we find it in, in verse 25 that he was run out of Damascus. He would later write in Ephesians 3.3 3 and Romans 6.25 that he had a revelation about the mystery of the gospel going not just to the, the Jews, but to the Samaritans and to the Gentiles as well, and that he'd be the guy to take it there. It may have been that those three years in Damascus and Arabia, which some actually compare to the disciples' three years that they spent with Jesus, that that's when Saul's eyes were opened to all of this, that he was taught by Jesus through the power of the Spirit and through members of the early church. I think taking all of that together, all these timelines and what was going on with Saul, and thinking about this element of time in our growth as Christians, this is the encouragement that I find. I'll try to state it in one simple, well, kind of long sentence. Uh, that as disciples, we're never too young to share the truth of the gospel. And we're never too old to learn and grow in our understanding of the gospel. 
As disciples of Jesus, we are never too young to share the truth of the gospel, and we're never too old to learn and grow in our understanding of the gospel. Now, I'm not speaking about physical age, but of our maturity in the faith. Though, of course, I would say, kids, you can be a witness of the gospel of Jesus just as much as your parents and those who are older than you can be. And those of you who are older, don't ever think that your days of effective witness are beyond you, but that you're always able to share the truth of the gospel about Jesus. But also, I think it's to say you don't need a seminary education. You don't need a position in a church or a ministry to tell other people about how Jesus changed you. You don't need to worry. You you can tell others about how you were running from Jesus, that you were fighting against him, and how he drew you to himself in small ways until there was a moment of clarity and you saw him and you knew who he was, that he was the Savior of the world. You can tell that story. You can proclaim that truth, and you can do it in a very effective way. In fact, it's often in those early years, those early months of a person first becoming a Christian, that they're able to proclaim the gospel with unique power, with unique effectiveness, maybe not in a really polished way with all their theological ducks in a row, but they can talk about how Jesus has radically changed them, and they can do it in a very, very clear way, because the change is obviously very clear in their life. But I think we also see that we can all continue to grow, that we can learn more and more about the depths of the gospel, that we should never think that we've come to a place where we can't grow and understand more about the scriptures or about how to proclaim God's truth, that we should always be seeking to know Christ more and more, to be teachable, to be humble hearers and doers of the word, that we're ready to learn from others always, because as disciples, we're never too young to share the truth of the gospel, but we're also never too old to learn and to grow. So don't think that you need to know volumes of information in order to share about how the gospel has changed you or how it can change others. But also don't think that the moment you became a Christian, that that was the beginning and the end of your growth. Don't think back and feel that the best days of your Christian life are long past. I think we can feel that way sometimes. That I was really a strong Christian back in the day. You know, there's some people who graduate from high school, but they never leave high school in their minds. Uh, that's kind of where life peaked. That's what Brian Adams sings about when he says, those were the best years of our lives. That's what he says. And Bruce Springsteen, what's he call them? Glory days. Those were the glory days, man. And how some people are always looking to go back to the glory days. I think nostalgia is fine. And surely Saul looked back on his life and said, wow, God really radically changed me in that moment. But I'd say to those of you who are Christians, don't get stuck into thinking that that the past was the only place that God could really use you and that you were able to really serve Christ. Those years in college or in high school or when you first became a believer, that those were the days that you were fully devoted to Jesus. But uh, that's long gone. Rather, I think we should take hold of these days. These can be glory days, can't they? Days that we really glorify God and serve Him fully. Don't think that those days are past. They can be right now. And the glory days can be more in the future. I'm sure we could push that illustration really far if we wanted to. But also just another encouragement in saying things like you don't need a seminary education. I know some of you are training for ministry. And and we look at Saul and recognize that it's good to take some time to prepare for the work that God has for you to do. It's good to take time and to focus energy on learning and growing before stepping into formal ministry roles and responsibilities. 
So don't despise these years thinking, I need to get out of this and get into real ministry as fast as I can, but rather use them. Even Saul had to spend at least three years, if not considering all 14 years that he spent before he was actually sent out as a missionary to church. So don't despise these years, but use them. So growing as a follower of Jesus will take time. Hopefully you can see the element of time that is a part of growing and that it's just a necessary part. But I I think next we see that growing in Jesus is going to involve trials. We're fine with time. I don't know if I want trials. I think we see this ingredient in the recipe of discipleship through Saul's early struggles, though, as as a Christian. Given how powerful his testimony was and what we know about his later life, we might be tempted to think that Saul's ministry was victory after victory. But instead, Luke shows us here that wherever Saul went, opposition seemed to follow him. In in these short verses, we find him facing death threats twice and also potential rejection by his fellow Christians. And all of this is in the first three or four years of him becoming a disciple of Jesus. Imagine the the shift in Paul's life. So he's this well-respected man in the Jewish community. He's a man of power. He's a man of authority. I'm sure he had plans for himself. Maybe he had dreams about becoming a teacher like Gamaliel who had taught him. He had thoughts about his his growing place of influence in the Jewish community, and then suddenly Jesus shows up and everything changes. This new understanding that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was the promised Messiah, it transformed Saul, but it also made him a man whose former friends wanted to kill him. And a man who, this new community that he was supposed to be a part of, everyone there is fearfully avoiding him. For a while, Saul was a man without a community, a man without a country. And surely this was a difficult situation for him to be in. In fact, it's many years later he writes in 2 Corinthians 11 about the many ways that he had suffered for his faith in Christ. And he writes at the very end about this time, very specifically that he was lowered in a basket to escape from Damascus. He mentions that as the last part of this long list. He'd been beaten He'd been stoned, he'd been shipwrecked, he'd been in all these other dangers that he lists. But this event, being lowered in a basket to escape from Damascus, is still emblazoned in his mind, it would seem. And I just wonder if it was so humiliating and so difficult for Saul to realize how rejected he was in this moment, that he can't even walk out of the city. He's got to be lowered down secretly in this basket. And that maybe in that moment he's realizing just how much he would suffer for Jesus, which is what Ananias told him. But it's just coming home to him because it wasn't just physical, but this was emotional. He's rejected. He's thrown out. He's humiliated by his brothers and sisters of the Jewish faith, by those who he later says in Romans 10 that his heart's desire, his earnest prayers that they would be saved. They're the ones that throw him out and want to kill him. Becoming a follower of Jesus was no easy road for Saul. Becoming a follower of Jesus brought more trials into Saul's life than it did initially, at least blessings, and even externally. But all those trials were a part of his growth. They were a sharing in the sufferings of Christ. They were a means of making him more perfect, more like Christ. Which is why we read from Philippians 3, where where Paul says, those things that that were once gained to me, I count them as loss. I count everything as loss, so that I might know Christ, that I might even know his sufferings and become conform to his death, that I could be like him in my trials. 
Trials and difficulty often are the result of our own sin or the sin in the world, but they're also just a part of walking down the narrow road of following Christ. We're reminded this on our Sunday nights when we spend time praying and we pray for the persecuted church. We read requests like this. I think we read this one recently. This is a a request out of Uganda from the Voice of the Martyrs. It says, a former Muslim leader who placed his faith in Christ on April 14th after a debate with a Christian evangelist is now being threatened by men from his former mosque. Darwishai, who is currently receiving discipleship training as a new Christian, has received death threats and fears for his family members' lives. He hasn't returned home since becoming a Christian because men from his former mosque are looking for him. He and his wife, who has not become a Christian, are living in a small apartment where Darwishai is receiving discipleship training. This is one report of many reports that we don't get. And it shows that that while Saul was unique in his calling, he was not unique in his trials. Here's a man facing death threats for being a Christian. Here's a man that's seeking to be discipled because he's new in his faith. Here's a man who is living in a small town, away from his hometown, outcast by his community, And even his wife is not a believer and probably wondering what he's thinking. We learn from Jesus and from Saul's writings that all who take the name of Christ will face persecution to varying degrees. In fact, a lack of trials may reveal that maybe we're not standing for Christ as we should. I'm not saying that we seek out difficulty and rejection, but I'm also saying that we don't avoid it when it comes and if it comes into our lives because we name the name of Jesus. But rather we expect it, we embrace it. Loving Christ more than comfort and saying that everything else to us is lost, but if we would follow Christ. Having said that, I'd say to you today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, know this, that God has sent his son Jesus to be the savior of the world. That he sent Christ to bring forgiveness of sins and he did it through his death and his resurrection. That Christ died to pay the penalty that is due to us for our sin. That he has risen to give us new life and salvation comes through faith in Jesus and the work that he has done. But also know this, that Christianity doesn't make life easier. That trials and difficulty are part of the Christian life, but as we follow Jesus, he's a Savior who has faced trials, he has faced pain, and he promises to be with us. And he promises to even turn our trials into gold, into growth in our faith. And I'd say this, as as hard as it is to follow Christ sometimes, one of the great gifts that we find is that we're, when we are joined to Christ, we are also joined to those who are His. We're joined to the church. In the midst of the trials that Saul faced, the bright beacon of hope was in fact the church and a couple of individuals in particular. And so I see this as the final element of, of, of discipleship and, and Saul's growth and our own growth. That there's time and there's trials, but there's also the love of God's people. Growing as a follower of Jesus will take time trials, but it will also take the genuine love of God's people. You know, with regard to each of the trials that Saul faces, it's the church that welcomes him and helps him. In Damascus, his disciples gather together when they hear about this plot to kill him, and they save him. In Jerusalem, it's the brothers, we're told, the family of God through faith in Jesus that whisk him away to Tarsus and save his life. In his hour of need, the church was there. And even when it seemed like the church was going to reject him when he first arrives in Jerusalem, we have that scene of everyone who's 
skeptical and afraid. There's one man in the church who took a risk, who embraced Saul, who brought him to the apostles, and who helped the church to see that Saul, the man who had been this rabid wolf ready to tear the church apart, was now a member of Jesus' flock. And that was Barnabas. What a great guy, Barnabas. We met Barnabas back at the end of chapter 4, and he's the, the guy who, in contrast to Ananias and Sapphira, sold his property and gave everything that he had to, to bless the poor. His given name was Joseph, but he was such an encourager that they, the church came up with a nickname for him, Barnabas, son of encouragement. What a good nickname to find yourself given. And he's true to his nickname here. He's the only one that's willing to approach Saul and to welcome him into the church. Don't you love Barnabas here? You can almost see him, uh, this, this scene of, of Paul walking through some church door maybe, and everyone's standing on the wall, avoiding Paul, not sure what to do. And here comes Barnabas across the way. He comes up to Saul and wouldn't have been a handshake. What's common in that day and age, it would have been a kiss, a kiss on the cheek. And Barnabas comes and welcomes Saul. And here's this story. What a bold, loving, courageous, gentle man. If you add to Barnabas' testimony, if you add Ananias from verses 10 through 19 to the, to the picture, then we find that Saul's life was transformed by this uncommon revelation of Jesus on the road to Damascus, an amazing miracle that happened in this moment. It was transformed by that, but it was also transformed by the very common hospitality and welcoming spirit of two Christian men. Men who literally probably risked their life to meet Paul where he was, to trust him when no one else would, to believe him when everyone else would barely even listen to him or look at him. We're reminded through these brothers that the church is a place of love. And it's a place of love, that the kind of love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's the kind of love the church has for one another. Love takes a risk on those who say that they want to walk with Jesus, no matter what their past was like or what their present circumstances say about them. Barnabas and Saul show us what it, and, and Ananias show, show us what it looks like to never assume that Jesus can't change someone. We saw that last week. They show us that, that if we really believe that, if we really believe that Jesus can change anyone, then we will welcome others and anyone in the name of Jesus, no matter who they are or who they were. We will believe that they can be changed, that they have been changed, that they are being changed. We will look at them and say, I'm not rejecting you. I'm embracing you. I accept that you truly can be changed by Christ. Ananias, Barnabas, and the church around Saul, they tell us again that what we saw last week, that we should never assume that someone can't be changed by Jesus. But they also tell us this, never underestimate the power of hospitality and welcoming. Never underestimate the simple, common task of hospitality and welcoming. It's a powerful thing. Don't think that on Sunday morning or afternoon for us, that a hug or a handshake or walking across the room is something small. Don't think that inviting someone into your home or entering the home of another one invited, that that's not a powerful act when it's done in the name and for the glory of Jesus. The great thing about hospitality and welcoming is we are surrounded every day by opportunities to share Jesus in this practical way. 
And it's a powerful way. So as people come to our church, we should be ready and we should be excited to greet them and to get to know them. As people stick around our church when we have potluck, we should be eager to sit at a table where we might not know anyone and get to know people so that we can hear their story and welcome them with the love of Christ. We should always be ready to welcome people into our homes, whether they're believers or or unbelievers, so that we can encourage them towards faith or encourage them in their faith. I was struck by an article that I saw this week online. It's from Christianity Today. They share these wonderful testimonies. And this man named Jonathan, I think it's Jarks, T-J-A-R-K-S. The title caught my eyes because we're looking at Acts 9. The title is God Shook My World at an EDM Concert. You want to know what EDM is? Electronic dance music. Very good. Uh, And the subtitle is, I was rolling on ecstasy when the scales suddenly fell from my eyes, which reminded me of Saul. Let me just read the first part of this. I won't read it all. But he writes, I never thought I would become a Christian. I wasn't raised in church. I grew up believing science had all the answers, that religion was merely lingering superstition from a more primitive time. Adam and Eve, Noah's Ark, Jonah living in the belly of a whale for three days. None of it seemed plausible. Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny weren't real, and Jesus Christ probably wasn't either. I spent my first 25 years living by my own standards. I thought I could do whatever I wanted as long as I wasn't hurting anyone. I partied, drank, did drugs, and looked for fulfillment in other people. None of it made me happy. I wasn't content, no matter what I did. This is the part I love. My journey to faith began six years ago when I had dinner with a co-worker and his wife who were evangelical Christians. There was nothing out of the ordinary about them, but the contrast between our lives was jarring. After dinner, I was meeting up with friends to split up some drugs. My co-worker and his wife never got drunk. Instead of getting messed up on weekends, they helped people. I went to church with them a few times, but nothing stuck. I could see the appeal of a Christian lifestyle. I just didn't believe any of it. He goes on to tell more of his story and how Jesus met him actually at this EDM concert in a unique way, and that the first people he contacted after that was this couple to find a church that he could go to. I love what he says. There's nothing, there was nothing out of the ordinary about them. They just had this coworker over for dinner. Here's a guy that Maybe you would look at and say, here's a a man who does drugs and parties on the weekends. There's no way that Jesus could save him. What was the first step? Hospitality. Welcoming. Kindness from some Christians that just had him over for dinner. They may have not even spoken a word about what the gospel was in that moment. But he saw the difference in their life. We should never underestimate the power of kindness to others. I'm sure this guy didn't look like a great candidate for Christianity, but Christianity, but the love of Jesus calls us to seek out all those who others might reject or might be skeptical of. You might come one night to coffee to our ESL program and see people that are struggling with English, people that are from a completely different country, people that are committed to a completely different religion. And you would gather there and you would say, here's some people that probably aren't going to be changed by Jesus. But We believe, we're just crazy enough to believe that as we gather, as we share coffee, as we give the gift of English, we do it with the belief that generosity in the name of Jesus, compelled by the power of the Spirit, with a willingness to proclaim the gospel, that all those things can change a person's life 
for eternity. In many ways, coffee is just hospitality. It's just welcoming. It's just kindness to anyone. And it's the belief that anyone can be changed by the gospel. I'll say this, though. There's a risk in welcoming others. I think Barnabas and Ananias took a risk. They were scared to go talk to Saul, surely. There's a risk of rejection as we try to welcome others. There's a risk of just feeling a little awkward, of saying the wrong thing. There's a risk of of missing something that we'd rather be doing or losing something that we love. But there's also so much to gain. In fact, as I think about Barnabas and Saul, when these two guys meet, they have no idea about the bond that's going to form between them. And the fact that some 10 plus years later, they're going to go on a mission trip together. The first mission trip of the Christian church. And they're going to be the ones that take the gospel into these Gentile areas. And they're going to do it with this kind of radical hospitality that they both understood. Growing as a follower of Jesus will take time. We should recognize that. We shouldn't rush it, but we should also be ready to speak no matter where we're at in our faith. Growing as a follower of Jesus will involve trials. It's not going to be easy, but God takes our trials and He uses them to shape us into Christ-likeness. Growing as a follower of Jesus will involve the genuine love of God's people. We are changed by God's by, by the love of God's people to us. That's why we gather together. That's why we sit around and have meals when we do, because there's something about gathering as a community that changes us. That one another, we become Christ to one another. We model the love of Jesus to one another. We need all these things for our growth. We have to reckon with time. We have to learn from trials. And we need to be shaped by our brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we grow, we're also looking for opportunities because we want to help others grow in the exact same way that we have. Brothers and sisters, you who have been changed through faith in Jesus, who are filled with God's Spirit, in the book of Acts, as we keep summarizing it, we have been once again reminded that we are invited to join in on the unstoppable ever-expanding, spirit-empowered spread of the word of Jesus to all people for the glory of God. And so my hope is that we would do this. We would do it before we leave this place, that we would join in on what's, what God is doing amongst us, but also as we leave and enter into this coming week, that we would seek opportunities to do the same with our coworkers, with friends, with strangers, with anyone who comes across our path. And it may be as simple as welcoming them into your home, inviting them over for a meal, just embracing them with the love of Christ in real practical ways.